Woe to me. Those are the words that Isaiah was able to utter as he got a glimpse into heaven, as he got a glimpse to be able to see God, as he got a glimpse into the same throne room that Ezekiel and John were able to see. He said, Woe to me, for I am undone. I am unraveled. I'm torn apart because I have seen God. He says, not only am I unclean and my mouth is unclean, but everybody I know is unclean because when Isaiah saw the magnitude of who God is, he all of a sudden recognized how lowly and unfit he was. And remember, this is a prophet saying this. This section of scripture comes in chapter 6 of Isaiah's prophecy. This was a man who by any counts, most people would see as good and qualified and ready for ministry. But he knew that he wasn't. But as that chapter continues, after Isaiah has this recognition of his complete inadequacy to stand in the presence of God, in verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then after this cleansing takes place, God asks a question. And he says, and now whom shall we send? And who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. It wasn't because of Isaiah's qualifications as a good speaker or a good writer. It wasn't because of Isaiah's notoriety in the region as a righteous or a holy man. The reason he was able to stand up before God and say, here I am, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to serve, I'm ready to minister, is because the God of heaven and earth sent a purifying fire to touch his lips and make him clean and make him fit for the job at hand. Last week we started looking and what it meant to live a life fit for ministry. And this reminder that all of us who profess the name of Jesus have been called to serve and to love Him through ministering to others. And that can be a lot of pressure. And as we come to a faith filled, saving knowledge of who God is, we find ourselves just like Isaiah saying, no, 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 I am unclean. I don't deserve to be here. And that is absolutely true. But then through the blood of Jesus, God touches us, makes us clean, and fits us for ministry. And then we have the calling and the responsibility to cultivate that fitness and to continue walking in that fitness and live in a way that honors and glorifies God, encourages and strengthens us individually and as the body, but also 
reaches out into a lost and broken world with the good news of Jesus Christ and the hands and feet of Christ that love our neighbors as ourselves. And so as we continue through this passage of scripture, where last week we were warned about meaningless arguments and battles in between believers, we're going to continue looking at how Paul teaches us to be fit for this calling to which we have been called. And so we're again going to look at 2 Timothy 14, or 2, 14 through 26. And this is the word of the Lord. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying about the resurrection that has already, that it has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may escape from the after being captured by him who do his will. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. And we say thanks be to God for his word. Our Father, we just do, as always, thank you and praise you for the fact that you speak to us and that you care enough about us to reveal not only what you've done for us, not only who you are, but also to include us in the work that we shouldn't have any place in at all. So Father, I just want to pray on a few fronts this morning. For those who are with us today who have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, I pray that you make the gospel clear through your word today, that it's not about what we do, but we are saved by grace and grace alone. And no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, your grace is good enough for them. And I pray that you move their hearts today and save them by their grace. Help you, help them know their need for Jesus. God, for those here who know Christ and are struggling with following him in ministry, whether that's a calling towards ministry work, a vocational ministry, positioned at a church or a ministry, or God, just being out and active in the community and in our church and serving in the way that you've called us to. God, I pray that you remove any hindrances, be it fear or guilt or pride or apathy, 
and that you would remind us that we are all called to be your ministers. God, for anyone who is serving and ministering now, but is feeling weary or doing so out of a desire to somehow earn the favor that's already been given to you, God, I pray for rest and strength and a recognition of the gospel. And so, Father, we just pray and ask that you would teach us and move us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at verse 15 here, Paul lays out an outline in one verse, a framework, an archetype for how we should live as ministers of the gospel. He says, do your best, and I love that he starts there, with this idea of do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so we just break down that passage. The very first thing that Paul says here is to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And so ministry begins with presenting ourselves to God. And if we look back at Isaiah's calling, we see the order of that happening. Because Isaiah doesn't present himself to God because he's met the qualifications or the standards. Isaiah doesn't present himself to God to be evaluated, to find out if he indeed is worthy of this calling. He presents himself to God because he has already been approved. We see that the seraphim has already touched his lips, that he has already been made clean, that his guilt has already been taken away and his sins have already been forgiven. And so when God calls, Isaiah is able to walk up and say, yeah, here I am. I am ready. You have saved me. You have cleansed me. You have made me prepared for the job. You have approved me. And so now I am presenting myself as one ready to go. And if you've put your faith in Christ, if you have followed after Jesus, then that statement is true about you, that you have been approved by God. Not because of what you've already done, not because of the kind of person you are, not because of the gifts or the skills that you have, but because of the fact that Christ has made you whole and made you new and approves you by his grace and by his mercy. And then we're able to stand before God. Paul loves that language of boldness in the presence of God. He tells us that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. He tells us that we can come near, that we can draw near to God with confidence, that we can come without shame or without guilt, that there is no hindrance. We're reminded in Scripture that that veil has been torn between God and man, and so that we can come boldly into the presence of God, and as ministers of His gospel, we can step forward. As ministers of His gospel, we can stand approved in the presence of the Almighty God of the universe. And when He calls us to go and to be His workers and to be His ministers, we can say, yes, absolutely, here I am, send me. I am ready and approved by Him. In the same way, whenever Jesus saves us by His grace and by His mercy, when Jesus calls us into a relationship with himself and into the church, 
He uses that same language. The language that we use in our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon, saying that our guilt has been taken away and our sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ so that we can stand approved in the presence of God. And so if you're here this morning and the reason why you haven't followed after Christ to love and to serve through ministry is that you just don't feel adequate or that you don't feel like you've done enough or you don't feel like you've been the kind of person that can possibly do what we're called to do. Remember that if you've put your faith in Jesus, your guilt has been pardoned, your sins have been taken away, and you are fitted by the God of the universe to serve and to love the way that Jesus loved and served. And so we present ourselves. Ministry begins not with meeting a set amount of qualifications or logging a certain amount of hours, but ministry begins with just our presence and our willingness to come before God and say, I'm, I'm here and I'm ready. Send me. Which leads us into the next thing. We present ourselves as one approved and as workers. We present ourselves as workers before God. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. We talk about this a lot, but far too often, we fall on one side or the other of the spectrum. We find ourselves working for Christ in order to somehow gain his affection Thinking if I do enough things, if I say the right things, if I follow him enough, if I go to church enough times, if I check off all these boxes and I do all these things, then maybe God will love me. Then maybe I'll earn his approval. Then maybe I'll meet his qualifications. But then on the other side, if we do recognize the truth of the gospel that salvation comes by grace and grace alone, there is a temptation to say, well, Jesus has done the work. I don't have to work for God's affection. I don't have to work for God's admiration because Jesus has lavished that on me through the cross. And so because of grace, I am saved and I am kept and he is keeping me until the very end. And so I don't have to do anything really. But the reality is, just as we see in the life of Isaiah, when we encounter that level of grace and mercy, when we encounter the God of the universe reaching down and saving us by His grace, our response should be to worship. Our response should be to honor and to glorify Him. Our response should be to say, yes, God, I am ready to do Your work, not because I need it in order to, to meet Your approval, but because You've already given me the approval and You have set me free to do it. And so I am approaching You as a worker, I am reaching out to you as someone ready to love and to serve and to minister. And I am ready to go. And so we receive our salvation by grace and then we act upon our salvation in the way that we work and serve and minister. Recognizing again, as we talked about last week, that every single one of us, man, woman, and child who has trusted in Jesus, we are called to ministry whether that's with a title in front of your name or behind your name, 
Whether you have your picture on a church website or not, whether it's vocation or just a part of everything that you do, we are all called to do the work of ministry, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to care for those who are in need, to proclaim the gospel in word and deed every moment of every day that God gives us. And so we stand before him approved as a worker of the gospel. But Paul continues. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And I love the juxtaposition there. That he says to do your best as a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And we've already talked about this a little bit throughout the book of 2 Timothy. But we are incredibly hard on ourselves, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, because we want to do well. We want to make God proud. We want to return the goodness and grace and mercy that he's given us in lives filled with worship. But the reality is we don't always meet that standard. And certainly for each and every one of us, we have lived lives that don't meet that standard. And so it can be really easy to be wrapped up in guilt and shame especially maybe as a new believer and a new follower of Jesus. To say, I don't have a squeaky clean story. You don't know what's in my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've said and done today. There's no way that God could possibly use me as a minister of the gospel. I'm not good enough. I'm too wrecked with this fear and shame and doubt because of all of these things that I've done. And again, we are pushed back to the truth of the gospel. That it's not about who you are or what you've done, but it's about who Christ is and what he has done for you. And if our past and our history and our legacy was good enough to keep us from the gospel, then we would be missing two-thirds of the New Testament right now. Because Paul tells us in his own language that he was not fit to serve Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. Someone who not only rejected Christ, but harmed his children. And so if Paul can stand fit for ministry, so can each and every one of us. Because our legacy and our history cannot negate the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. But not only that, there is a calling in this passage to not only be unashamed of what we have done and to not only recognize that it's our calling to do our best to live a life that honors and glorifies Christ, we do have to strive to live a life that honors and glorifies Christ. And we're going to talk about that in detail in just a moment here. But when Paul says that has no reason to be ashamed, we don't want to add reasons for shame to be a part of our lives as well. And we want to strive to live a life as followers of Jesus that is above reproach so that our actions in our lives can never be said to be standing in direct contrast to the words that we say and the ministry that we do. But we'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. And so we present ourselves as one approved, a worker ready to do the works of grace and salvation above reproach and shame. And then he says, we present ourselves as one who can rightly handle Scripture. Verse 15 again says, 
Do your best to present yourself to God, one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You see, while there is no degree requirement to be a follower of Christ, there is no depth meter. There is an understanding that the only way to grow in our faith, the only way to grow in our knowledge of who Christ is, is to dive deeply into the word that he's given us and to be able to rightly divide it We talked about the fact that there is a measure of debate and discussion when it comes to theological issues that can be harmful. And the way that we do those things certainly matters even more. But that's not a reason to say that doctrine doesn't matter, that theology doesn't matter, because the reality is we know and understand and learn who God is by digging deeply into his word and digging deeply into doctrine. And so we should desire, no matter who we are, no matter what we think our role and responsibility is in the life of the church, that each and every one of us should be dedicated to doctrine, should be passionate about knowing and loving Jesus so that in any time and in any season, we can open up the word of God and communicate the gospel clearly to anyone who needs it, to preach it to ourselves daily and use it to, as Paul is going to tell us later, encourage one another, exhort one another, and even at times rebuke one another when necessary because we know the truth of God's word and we can rightly handle God's word. And if we're going to expect that we can just build a church deep enough and a worship service deep enough that on Sundays, even though our services are packed with scripture from start to finish, and even though I do my best to try to preach in a way that that rings out the depth of doctrine and whoever comes before us and preaches to us as Redeeming Grace Community Church, we expect that there is a standard that we will dig deeply into God's word and be pushed towards a deeper understanding of who he is. Sunday mornings alone is not enough. We need to be students of God's word, Monday through Saturday and on Sunday as well. We need to read deeply. We need to read consistently and constantly and pray that the Spirit would teach us things that are beyond our grasp and our understanding. And so this is the framework for a good minister of the gospel starting with salvation, recognizing that he has taken away our shame and guilt, being willing to stand before him as a worker, someone ready to stand in and do what God is calling us to do, even if it's beyond our abilities or our skill set, trusting that he will lead us and guide us and equip us as we go, living a life that honors and glorifies him and founding all of it in the truth of Scripture. And that last one is especially necessary because he continues in verse 16 and 17, or really at the end of verse 15, or excuse me, at the beginning of verse 15. Saying that we should handle the word of truth rightly, but avoiding irreverent babble, for it will lead to more and more unrighteousness and ungodliness. He says their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. He says they're saying that the resurrection has already happened, upsetting the faith of some. And Paul recognized 
because of a lack of depth and because of malicious intentions and sometimes both, that there were false teachers all around the church as early as the first century, and that continues today. And so if we're not grounded and rooted in Scripture, when we hear these things, like these two people were saying that the resurrection of the dead had already happened, and Paul says, no, we are waiting and longing for that, and you would know that if you were dedicated to the truth of the gospel, we have to store up for ourselves in our hearts the truth of God's Word. Because there are false teachers all around us constantly trying to lead God's people astray and take the faithful away from the truth. But we are called to be the kind of people that stand firm, committed to the gospel, committed to the work of ministry, and showing fitness for ministry by living out the gospel in our lives. But as I already mentioned, this goes a lot deeper than just good doctrine and good works. Because for our ministry to be effective, it has to be reflected in our lives. It has to be reflected in what happens beyond Sunday mornings. It has to be reflected in what happens beyond ministry events and discipleship in small groups. Even morning study in Scripture. But it has to be reflected in the way that we live. So finally here we see that the last calling of a minister of the gospel, of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus, is not only to pursue a Christ-like life that honors and glorifies Him, but to love it. He continues in verse 21, in 20 and 21, saying, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, if we were to read this passage under the lens of moralism, particularly American Christian moralism of just not doing the wrong things, this passage would stop at the phrase, cleanse yourself. Because so often that's what we think being a good Christian is. That being a follower of Jesus just means that you stop doing the bad, sinful stuff that you withhold things from yourself, that you separate yourself from sin, and that's all there is to it. And we see that all throughout the course of not just Christian history, but of the people of God from Genesis to Revelation. When you think about times in history, like the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, where you see this rise of monasticism and aesthetics as they would separate themselves completely from all of culture, going out and cloistering themselves, living in monasteries, living in caves, and dwelling away from everyone, believing that if they could separate themselves far enough from the world, then they could eliminate all the bad things. And they would spend their time dwelling on nothing but the sin and trying to purge themselves, sometimes even physically, by burning themselves or whipping themselves to try to purge themselves of sin. But what happens in those instances as we find ourselves doing nothing but focusing on sin and never focusing on the grace and mercy that God has called us to participate in. Think about the people of Egypt or the people of Israel leaving Egypt. And we use this as an example all the time, but as they're walking through the wilderness, they start to say, you know what? It was better back in Egypt. It was better back in the life that we have. And they wanted to return again to that slavery. And when we recognize and view Christianity as just stay away from the bad stuff, it's weird because all we start to do is think about the bad stuff. Have you ever tried a diet where you're just eliminating certain things 
All you think about is those things. Good diets replace those things with better things. Taking out the bad and replacing it with good foods that are good for the body and good exercise that, that counteracts that weight and draws your mind and your attention, your focus and your life in another direction. And the same thing is true when it comes to the Christian life. For too long, we have seen Christianity as a life of abstinence when it's meant to be a life of abundance. Going back to Genesis. Remember, if you were here with us a year or so ago when we walked through the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, when we looked at the narrative of the Garden of Eden, we saw that in that garden there was one no and an infinite amount of yeses. God said, don't eat from the tree of the, gar of the knowledge of good and evil, but everything else belongs to you. And the intention and the focus was never for that tree to be the central focus, but for living in the garden with God to be the focus. But that's what sin does, isn't it? It just drives our eyes away from the goodness and the abundance that God has for us and helps us to focus on things that ultimately want to bring us toward death. But Jesus says that he came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. We are called to live a purpose-filled life, reflecting the Imago Dei, the image of God in everything that we do and everywhere that we go. And so this changes the way that we look at confession. This changes the way that we look at repentance. This changes the way that we look at sin. That this isn't simply God trying to pull us away from something simply so that we look different or simply so that we're abstaining from things and wanting to make us miserable. But God's commandments are for us to pull us away from things that lead us towards death, to lead us away from things that rob us of our joy, to lead us away from things that rob us of our identity, and then to lead us toward things that give us fulfillment, abundance, and joy. Verse 22, as he tells us in verse 21, to be the kind of people who desire every good work. Not wanting to be of dishonorable use, but desiring for good work. He continues and says, to do that, you should flee your youthful passions. And that's such a good description of sin. That these things are youthful passions. They're things that I liked and I did when I was young, but now I recognize that they are not good for me. And they're not how I'm meant to live. So Paul says, flee those useful passions, but don't just flee them into nowhere. Don't just flee them into legalism of saying, I don't do these things anymore because I'm not supposed to. But he says, flee these things and leave them behind and instead pursue something else. And he says to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Think about how beautiful these things are. Paul says, leave that junk, leave that garbage that wants to kill you. And instead, pursue righteousness. Instead, pursue the life that God has called you to. A life of rightness, of doing things for good reasons, for gospel reasons. A life that is above reproach. A life that doesn't lead you into guilt or shame or brokenness, but a life that leads you into seeing your worth and understanding what Christ has done for you through the way that you live. He says, live a life of faith. 
While a life of sin wants to keep you comfortable by imprisoning you and making you afraid and so ashamed that you don't take any steps, God is calling you towards a life of faith where you're willing to step out into the unknown knowing that the God of the universe is there to catch you and lead you wherever he calls you to go or wherever he calls you to stay and we can live a life of freedom and faithfulness wherever he leads us. He says pursue a life of love. While sin wants us to be people of hatred and violence and division, the gospel calls us to love one another as Christ has loved us. Calls us to live in peace and harmony with one another. Calls us to bear burdens for one another and live in the kind of community that can only come from the gospel. He says, flee youthful passions and strive for peace in the midst of a violent and broken world. These are good and beautiful things that if all we're going to do is simply try to live the lowest common denominator life of I'm just not going to sin, we are going to miss the entire life that God has designed for us. We confess and we repent and we lay those sins down at the foot of the cross. We run from those things and flee from those things and strive after the things that replace them. The things that Jesus died and rose again to give us so that we could have this life and have it abundantly. The pursuit of a Christ-like life is not a burden, but it is freedom, and that's why we can love it. Paul in Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he contrasts those things with the, the works of the flesh. And all these works of the flesh that he lays out are things that cause us shame, things that cause us guilt, things that cause us brokenness and division and fractured relationships and just drive us towards sickness and death. But he says the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love the next phrase because he says against such things, there is no law. He says there is absolute freedom in love. There's absolute freedom in joy. There's absolute freedom in peace. All of these things bring with them absolute freedom. But not only that, there is no limit to how much you can participate in these things. There's no limit to how much you can enjoy these things. There's no limit to how much you can find abundance in these things. You see, being a qualified minister of the gospel means not only living a life fleeing from sin, but actually loving ministry, loving the gospel, loving the life that Christ has called us to. And when we start to live that way of not just rejecting sin, but running towards the good life that Jesus died to give us, we will find that joy and that peace and that hope that comes only from him. We need to be the kind of people who love righteousness, who love faith, who love love, who love peace, and strive to be ready for every good work, putting away all the junk. But once we put it away, not looking back and longing for it, but recognizing that that's actually what sin is. It's just junk and death waiting to happen. But Jesus is calling us towards life and life abundantly. And so, of course, we would want to flee from the garbage and run towards the goodness. But it requires that we change our perspective to see it that way and to trust that God is going to be faithful in what he has promised. And we need to pursue that daily. 
and find joy as God uses our Christ-like life and faith to draw others to himself. And so as we look at all this, we find that we don't need a degree or a long vocational title to be a minister of the gospel. All we need is Jesus. He is the one who qualifies us. He's the one who approves us, and he's the one who equips us. And the gospel is all we need to be able to stand before him as people approved by God, equipped for ministry. And just answer that call by saying, here I am, send me. And then being sure to live our lives in a way that to our very best ability, it's not a distraction from the gospel, but a reinforcement of it. That it is not a contradiction or hypocrisy, but that our lives are lives of holiness and righteousness, faith, love, hope, and peace. But recognizing that they won't always be. And when we fall short and when we mess up, that we are driven immediately to humility, confession, and repentance. And then just continuing along in the work that he has called us to do as people who have no reason to be ashamed, but who have been called by the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you have been saved by Jesus, you have been called to ministry. I'm not saying that means that tomorrow you have to put in your two weeks notice at your jobs, whatever they may be, and then find a church to get on staff. That's not what we're meaning here. I mean, if that's your calling, if that's what you feel to do, go do it now. But each and every one of us have been called by Jesus to be a kingdom of priests, honoring him and loving him and serving him, working for the good of our neighbors, preaching and proclaiming the gospel at every opportunity, and loving one another as Christ has loved us. And so that's our calling and our responsibility for each one of us individually, for our church as Redeeming Grace Community Church, and the church all over the world. So let's be the place where that begins. Let's be the kind of people who live our lives fit for ministry and then are constantly engaged in the work of ministry.